Good morning. This morning in Bible class in the auditorium, we were talking about certain things that we do by way of custom, and those things can be quite good and meaningful. One of the customs that we uh, practice here at the Lehman Avenue Church of Christ is that at the end of every lesson, we extend heaven's invitation. It is heaven's, it's not ours, it is an offer from Christ to those in need. For the one who has never acted on their faith in Jesus Christ to repent of sins and to be baptized to have those sins washed away. We know that it may be that you prefer to do that quietly in a small group apart from the assemblies and that's fine, that's good. But it may be that you want to declare your faith in front of this entire assembly and to put on your Lord in baptism. As Clint leads us in a song in a few moments, that will be your opportunity if you wish to do that. It's also a time for those who are members of the body of Christ, brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin and need to confess that. 1 John 1 and verse 9, maybe that's a need that you have arrived at and you want to make known something, some way in which you're struggling and you need us to pray for you. It'll be our privilege to do that. You'll find brothers and sisters who love you and care about you so that you won't have to respond alone. They'll come to, to lend their support to you. Or maybe there are the struggles of this life and you need help. You need us to pray for you. It is such an honor. As we just sang, we're all part of God's family to be able to pray for one another. And so as we reach the end of this lesson later and you have that desire and that need, we want to invite you at that time to come. I wouldn't have dared looked up these statistics before we went on our recent cruise to the Holy Lands, but when I got back, I was curious about the maritime disasters that have happened in our world this year. Here's what I found. I found that 106 in a wedding party, tragically, on the Niger River in Nigeria, lost their lives in a maritime disaster. That often that there are disasters that involve migrants, for example, there were 82 who were trying to reach the coast of Greece and they perished. Hundreds are missing and are presumed dead. And then off Cape Verde, Spain, there were some coming from Senegal and as they strived to get, get to the Cape Verde, 62 of them lost their lives. I read about 33 that died in a fire on a ferry in the Philippines and probably the one that's best known to us this year involves that party of five and the Titan submersible on their way to see the Titanic that perished. The International Organization for Migration tells us that hundreds upon hundreds of those potential migrants lose their lives in maritime disasters as they're trying to escape poverty and corruption and seek of a better life in search of it. And they die. When we are in 1 Timothy chapter 1, near the end of that chapter, the Apostle Paul speaks of some who are struggling with the prospect of spiritual shipwreck. Remember that the Apostle Paul said that there was a command that he entrusted to his son Timothy according to the prophecies that had been spoken before concerning him, that by them he should fight the good fight. With regard to faith and a good conscience, some have rejected and have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom was Hymenaeus and Alexander whom he says, I have delivered to Satan that they should learn not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 through 20. As we look at that passage, we see that they were the cause of their own shipwreck. Now, if we were to say that 
our life here on earth is or could be compared to navigating an ocean or a sea. I think we would say that there are times in which there are some very still waters. And we have a very easy travel over the waters of life. But there are other times when we are facing great trials and difficulties. And there are storms that come into our lives. It is then that we are tested in our faith and our conscience may struggle. And we may find ourselves in a position to where we let go of Christ And as a result of this, our faith is shipwrecked. You know, another analogy that the Apostle Paul likes to make is that we're in a fight. And it's really two different ways to say the same thing. We're in a fight not against, though we are, but in this chapter and so often in 1 Timothy, he is talking about what we're in a fight for. And what we're in a fight for is for our faith. Now last week in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Hiram pointed to us as to how we could fight that good fight. And we do so through the presence and the importance of sound doctrine. And what I want you to see is that Paul is not changing the subject, he's building on it. And so as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 today, I want us to notice that Paul has given us ways in which we can fight for our faith, how we can keep our spiritual vessel afloat as we face the difficulties that that attend against our faith. How do we hold on to our faith? According to Paul, not everybody does. According to the rest of the New Testament, most do not. What Paul is going to say in 1 Timothy chapter 2 are four tangible ways that you and I can hold on to our faith. We can survive. We can have an anchor in the storms on life's sea. Number one, if you want to hold on to your faith, then you have got to have a strong prayer life. Now I know that preachers and Bible class teachers are often saying those kinds of things. How do you protect yourself spiritually? You need to read the Bible and you need to pray faithfully. But that means something very specific In this chapter, you'll notice that after talking about fighting that good fight of faith, he says, first of all, or in the first place, he's going to give us some tangible ways. And he says, what I want you to do is pray. But these are specific prayers. He says, I want you to pray for all men. Now, you'll find that he uses four synonyms for prayer that describe what a prayer life ought to look like. And one of the very first things he says is that they are entreaties. Entreaties are begging. It's asking, it's pleading with God to help. And so as Paul gets started, he says, these prayers that I have in mind, they're begging prayers, they're pleading prayers on behalf of the object. And then he just uses that very general word, prayer. That is beseeching or asking help of deity. It's the broad general word for prayer. And then he uses the word petitions. That's a different kind of prayer. This is a prayer of intercession. This is when we go to God on behalf of someone else. He says, I want you to engage in those prayers. And then there's thanksgiving. This is a part or description of prayer in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the expression and the experience of gratitude that shows itself in the action of thanksgiving. Paul says, if you want to hold on to your faith, then on behalf of all men... I want you to pray these kind of prayers, but it's more specific than just all men, isn't it? 
He is talking about the prayers that he wants us as the people of God in the house of God, which is the church, 1 Timothy 3.15, that these are prayers that I want you to pray for your political leaders from the top to the bottom. Verse 2. How are you doing with that? Do you pray for the president? Do you pray for the Congress? Do you pray for the governor? I know their approval ratings, all of them, are, are very terrible, but that's not really a relevant matter to God. He says, I want you to pray for these individuals, regardless of their political party. You know, what Paul is doing here in several instances is going to cut against the grain of our feelings and maybe even some of the pressures that we feel from our culture and society. He says, I want you to pray for them even if you don't agree with their policies. I want you to pray for them even if you don't like them personally. You see, he doesn't say to pass moral judgment on those political leaders. That's God's work. He wants us to pray for them. And so here's the first command. Do you want to hold on to your faith? You didn't really realize that was coming, did you? That what you do to hold on to your faith is to pray for your political leaders. But you know what's remarkable in this chapter especially is that God can give us some very difficult things to do, but then he comes along and he tells us why or he gives us motivation. Right here with this command, he gives us three motivations to obey it. He says in the first place... It is beneficial to the church. There are tangible spiritual blessings that the church receives when we pray for our political leaders. He says you lead a tranquil and a quiet life. You're free from the external pressures and the internal pressures that can be so much a part of society. He says I want you to pray because of the good that it will do you. But see, God doesn't want us just to feel to to pray for our leaders so that we'll be left alone. He wants us to pray for our political leaders so that we can look like and act like God. Motivation number one is it benefits the church to pray that way. It will cause us to have an unhindered faith, free from disturbance. At least that's in the ideal what Paul is saying here. But number two, another motivation for having a strong prayer life for our political leaders is that it is good in the eyes of God. You know, if I only had one motivation to obey a command, wouldn't this be enough? That God says this is good? I want to do everything that the Bible says it's good for me to do, especially if it's good in God's eyes. But you know, Paul goes a little bit further here and he says this is good in the eyes of God our Savior. That's a phrase that Paul's going to use repeatedly in 1 Timothy. You'll find it in 1 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 3, and 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. It is good in God's eyes. He sees it, the God who is our Savior. And so isn't that a reminder That just like God saved us from where we were that was not where we should or needed to be, that He wants us praying for our political leaders who may or may not be where they should be. But a third motivation is that God wants us praying for these political leaders because He desires all men to be saved. What He says to begin with is, I want you to pray for all men. Well, that reminds me of some statements in the New Testament. Who's included in all men? Jesus says, love your enemies 
and pray for those that persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And of course, James 5.16 says that we are to pray for one another. But here we're praying for our political leaders. God says, you pray for all men because I want all men to be saved, regardless of their age, their gender, their race, their intelligence, their income level, or the sin struggle that they have. God says, this is important for your faith, because God wants all men to be saved. He wants us praying for everybody, including those in political power. I say that because, yes, I know that we're in a a democracy, but so often we feel like we're powerless. Regardless of where you stand politically, you may feel like your vote means nothing. Well, Paul says, don't worry about your vote. Make sure you're on your knees in prayer because that's powerful. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 13, the Bible says that we're to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every institution, like kings, as those who are in authority, or governors who he sends for the punishment of evildoers or for the praise of those who do right. And he says that through this you're going to not wear your, uh, your, your freedom as a cloak for evil, but you're going to be blind servants of God. And so in this I want you to honor all men. I want you to love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. You see, this is not the way our culture preaches to us. They say if you hate it or, you hurt, uh, or you're hurt by those who are in power, then you behave in a way that's unrighteous. But Paul says Christians are going to be different. A mom was frustrated with her son. Mom, did you ever go through that? That boy was misbehaving and so she sent him to his room to think about what he'd done. And he came out a short time later and he said, Mom, I want you to know that I prayed to God and thought about what I did. Mom felt like all those lessons were finally landing. And she said, that's good, son. You know that if you pray to God to help you, that he will. He said, Mom, I didn't pray that God would help me. I prayed that God would cause you to put up with me. Maybe our prayers won't help them, but maybe it'll help us to put up with those in political power. But whatever the reason, the Apostle Paul says, you want to hold on to your faith, then have a strong prayer life. And that means even praying for those in politics. Number two, if you want to hold on to your faith, then you need to have a proper worldview. What is a worldview? It's very simply the way that we view our world. Dr. Douglas Gruthius says that a worldview ought to explain what it should explain. If it is amiss when it comes to explaining our meaning and our morality and mortality, then it's not relevant to what is persistent and what is prevalent in our lives. He says, but the cosmos and human experience and history shows that Christian deism gives the best explanation to the facts. The Apostle Paul is in the middle of telling us how we hold on to our faith, and he says you've got to have a proper way to to view the world. And there are components to a worldview. And Paul only gives us a few of them here. You cannot have a healthy and a proper worldview without a proper view of God. And so he gives us a healthy view of God. And again, the first thing that he tells us about God is that God would have all men to be saved. In other words, Paul says, I want you to see the lost like God sees the lost. To have a healthy view of God, you've got to see God as a God who desires all to come to him. But another part of the healthy view of God is we've got to see that there is one God. 
And that one God has to be defined for us by the source of truth. And Paul is going to define that here in 1 Timothy. The rest of the Bible does. But there's one true and living God and he has certain characteristics. He has a certain nature. And we can't ourselves define God as we would and say that my God would or would not do this. But instead we submit ourselves in a healthy worldview of God that there is one God. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 5, there's one God and Father of all who's above all, through all, and in you all. But we also have to have a healthy view of God and in doing so we see that God is a giver. He is perfect. He is just. But it's balanced by His goodness. God has given us Jesus as a mediator, a go-between that allows us access to God. And he gave himself as a ransom for us. That is, a price of deliverance that was paid, made possible. If we're going to have a healthy view of God, we've got to see God as a God who gives. And so in our worldview, we've got to see God as he is presented in Scripture. We've also got to have, for a proper worldview, we've got to have a proper view of truth. It's an emphasis that you're going to find throughout the book of 1 Timothy. And I want you to see that there's one truth. We see this because Paul says that God wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's not one truth or a truth. And to accomplish this objective, you're going to find the Apostle Paul in a lot of different ways, lining out for us that there is objective truth. There's not your truth and my truth, and you can have yours and I can have mine. You'll notice how he talks about commands and instruction throughout the letter. Look at chapter 1 and verse 4, that one can depart from that. Chapter 1 and verse 5, that there uh, is commands and instruction about good faith and a good conscience. Chapter 1 and verse 18, there's commands and instructions. In chapter 4 and verse 3, in chapter 5 and verse 7, in chapter 6 and verse 13, in chapter 6 and verse 17, there's all of this instruction on your character, on your behavior, on how to take care of widows, how to uh, handle your money. And if there's right instruction on these things, then there has to be wrong instruction. You'll find that the Apostle Paul talks a lot about truth in 1 Timothy. Five times he talks about the truth. And he says that you can know the truth, chapter 2 and verse 4. You can tell and you can teach the truth, chapter 2 and verse 7. You can believe the truth, chapter 4 and verse 3. But you can also be devoid of the truth, chapter 6 and verse 5. And so you'll also find the word teaching throughout the book of 1 Timothy. Eight times in the book of 1 Timothy, some form of that word. And so through commands and instruction and truth and teaching, Paul is saying you've got to have the right attitude about truth. God determines it. And it's His truth. And we must obey it. You see, in this post-truth age, we need that more than anything. It's so easy to let go of your faith if you don't believe that there is an objective body of truth that's true for everybody, everywhere. It's especially going to be important as we look at the rest of this chapter. It's very unpopular even in religious circles. But then we also have to have a proper view of ourselves. You're going to have a, a strong, healthy worldview. What's your view of yourself? Verse 5 and 6, you've got to see that you're made in the image of God. And that He loved you enough that He gave His Son to be your mediator and to be your ransom. And so with these ideas of a worldview, it keeps me from having an overinflated view of myself. 
that puts my will and my thoughts above what God has said. It keeps me from having an under-inflated view of myself that denies my immortality, that does not see myself as precious in the eyes of my Creator. And it also doesn't give me a distorted sense of myself that causes me to see myself as divorced from objective truth. A few years ago I saw an episode of Oprah Winfrey and it was about children who were born in the 80s. They were test tube babies. And, and of course they knew who their mothers were, but they didn't know who their fathers were. And so they came on the show and they talked about how their life was void of completion because they didn't know where they came from. One boy, as he wiped tears from his eyes, said all that he knew about his dad was that he came from test tube number 46. You know, I think that there are a lot of people in our world that have no idea about their identity, about their meaning, about their destiny. They have no idea who they are, where they came from, and ultimately where they are going. But what helps us hold on to faith is that we have a proper worldview. We see God as He is. We see truth as it is. And we see ourselves as we are. And that helps us to hang on in the storms of life. But then third... If we're going to hold on to our faith, we have got to practice righteous male leadership. When I say gender roles, and I mentioned 1 Timothy chapter 2, you probably think about women's role in the church. And we're going to get there before we close this lesson. But I want you to see that fully half of this chapter is devoted to the role that men are to play in the body of Christ. When we think about what God has established and designed, Jesus literally gave his life in order to purchase the church. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. And so the Apostle Paul is concerned in this letter about how we're to conduct ourselves in that church, in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And he starts with the men. He talks about our responsibility of prayer and preaching in verse 1 through 7. And then our responsibility in public leadership in the church. God has the, the church lined out in function. He has roles for each of us to play. And there is a distinct role that men are to play in the body of Christ. And so to this end, he's going to talk about opportunities to lead. Because that's the mantle of responsibility he's placed on men in the household of God. That we are to publicly lead. And so what are you going to find in chapter 3? He's going to talk about those who would shepherd, who would lead the church as its earthly leaders in submission to the great shepherd. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8, that those men are to serve in that capacity. And in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, if they serve well, they're going to be rewarded by the chief shepherd himself. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 through 12, he gives qualifications for those men who are identified as deacons. And through serving well, they're going to have a good conscience. And a, and a good standing in the sight of Jesus Christ. And so those men who are designated to serve in a special way, those tasks, those areas of service. In chapter 4, he's going to talk about preachers. God has men in a position to where they're to preach the gospel. He's, and so Paul will say in chapter 4 and verse 16, Take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in so doing you will save both yourself and those that hear you. And then in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, he uses one act of worship as a synecdoche, a part that stands for the whole, to tell us how God wants men to approach the public leadership of worship. Sometimes we think God doesn't give much attention to the men. He spends all his time on the women. But I want you to see what he says in chapter 2 and verse 8. 
He says, I want the men to lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. He uses the act of worship of prayer, but don't miss the emphasis. The emphasis is on the hands, that is the life, of the men who lead. Here is a biblical fact. A man should not lead us in worship who is not living a holy life. Men with holy hands are who God designates. That's who should be leading us. Without wrath and without dissension. God's concerned with how the man is living from Monday through Saturday. Is he discrediting the bride of Christ? He's not to lead in worship. But God is focusing on the importance that men are to serve in leading the church. Far too often if we're not careful, men, what we want to do is we want to fade into the background and kind of hide back there and not take a public role. But God says to hold on to your faith. The church has got to be filled with men who will stand up and will lead because of the powerful impact it has on the kingdom. Have you ever been a part of a congregation or been somewhere where the church has pretty well dwindled down to just the ladies of the congregation? It's harder for it to have the the powerful impact that it would have when that church is doing what God says. And so God's given men these powerful examples of leadership. From Moses to Joshua to David to Elijah to uh, Nehemiah to Jesus to Paul. And he says, everybody's got a role to play. Men, you've got to practice righteous male leadership. Step up and lead spiritually. And then number four, if we're going to hold on to our faith, we have got to respect God's pattern for women's role in the church. As Paul ends this part of his discussion in the letter, in verse 9 through 15, you'll notice that there are three commands that God gives to the godly woman. Command number one is that she is to dress modestly, verse 9. Now his concern in the context seems to be with women who were overdressing. But the principle was that in their dress, they were calling attention to their outer person instead of that hidden person of the heart. And so in any way in which the emphasis is put on the outward person instead of the inner person, it's a difficulty for one to obey this command. When one dresses modestly, they are portraying, they're eclipsing the world and its sinful influences. But when a woman dresses immodestly, she's hiding the powerful light of Christ. And so Paul says, command number one, dress modestly. Command number two, do good and godly works. You see, this modesty is is an attitude of heart. And it's a bridge, verse 10 is, between the command in verse 9 and the command in verse 11. How does God's woman shine in the kingdom of God? She quietly goes about doing good works. And then the third command is that she is to learn in silence in all subjection. Verse 11. You know... The Apostle Paul has no other considerations except that this is because of its tie to creation. Whether in or out of the assembly context, Adam was first formed and then Eve. Eve was deceived in the transgression. And so God has a role and a function for man and woman. You know what we often do with this passage is we try to armchair quarterback a little bit and we say, I wonder why God has delineated the roles like that. And there have been some pretty good theories. Here's one I think may be as good as I've ever heard. Maybe because men are not naturally disposed to take their spirituality serious. 
that God has pushed man into this position to where he must publicly lead because women are more naturally inclined to be spiritual minded. I think I can show you some examples from Scripture that hold this up. Predominantly speaking, what was the gender that was most present at the foot of the cross? John 19, 25, it was woman. And as you think about the, the, the gender that was responsible for meeting Jesus' needs in his earthly ministry, what gender was overwhelmingly represented? Matthew 27, 55, it was women. Who really filled in the gap and really told the line in that difficult time between the resurrection and the establishment of the church? Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, it was women. God sees women as spiritual beings. You don't have to look very far in your life before you can say, I can show you examples of that very thing. God says, you can powerfully grow the church, whatever your function, whatever your role. And I want you to look at women after Acts chapter 2 and the powerful role they played in the strengthening of the church. And you'll see how women were really predominant. Women were involved predominantly, at least actively, in evangelism. And we get a great example of that in Acts 18 and verse 26 with Priscilla. Women were active supporters of missionaries. Women had the church meet in their home. John Mark's mother did in um, Acts 12 and verse 12. Priscilla did in Romans 16 and verse 5. Nympha did in Colossians 4 and verse 15. There was active support of missionaries like uh, those individuals who were serving uh, and helping and supporting like Lydia in Acts 16 and verse 40. And again Priscilla in Romans 16 and verse 4. And then they were practicing benevolence and hospitality and service like Phoebe and like the godly widow of 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 10. God says, this is my house, my rules. But more than that. I know what it will take for those who are in my house to hold on to their faith. And I want you to respect the roles that I've given to you, men and ladies. It's how you hold on to your faith. For either gender, we're not doing nearly all that's available for us to do. And so God wants us to step up on behalf of our faith. You know, this is the closest that I've lived to Tornado Alley. And there are a couple of things that I'm really scared of. I'm scared of poisonous snakes, and they all seem poisonous to me. And I'm scared of tornadoes. I don't know that we're in the heart of Tornado Alley, but I know that my boys, until recently, all lived up in North Alabama, and that's probably where it is. A few years ago, do you remember that storm that hit uh, in Alabama and killed 250 people? It was about a decade ago. Near Wellington, Alabama, one of the, at the heart of that storm, there was the Hardy family, big family. And they found themselves caught out in the weather. And there was nothing that they could do. They couldn't go to a, a, any kind of substantial shelter. There was a metal clubhouse, but it had been turned on its side by the winds. And so all they had to do was, they happened to have a rope with them, and there was a small clump of trees. And so they gathered all the children together, and they tied that rope around them, and they hunkered down as this terrible storm went past. And one of the family members in an interview said that we may have been scratched by flying dirt and debris, but we were not seriously injured. I'm not recommending that's how you ride out a tornado. But they found themselves there and they survived because they held on to one another and they held on through the storm. Paul says there are storms in this life that can cause you to let go of your faith. And the remedies that he provides may not be the first thing that comes to your mind. Pray. For your political leaders, 
have a proper worldview about God, about truth, and about yourself, men step up and, and practice spiritual male leadership, and then respect God's pattern for the role of women in the church. You see, the faith is God's faith, and He tells us of what it is composed. But to hold on to our faith, we've got to start at the starting line of faith. It takes us back to 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. God wants all men to be saved. If you're in that category we started this lesson with and you've not yet obeyed the gospel, no matter where you think you've gone, how low you think you've been, God wants you to be saved. If you're a child of God and you've turned away from Him and you've lived apart from His grace, He wants you to be saved, to come back to Him. We're going to sing a song to encourage you. If you need to respond, we'd love to meet you and to encourage you in any way we can right now as we stand and sing.